I want to start by having you turn with me to Genesis, the second chapter. Like last week, we're going to start at the beginning. Genesis 2, verse 8. Uh, actually, verses 8 and some following that a little here and there. We're going to start at verse 8 there. Genesis 2, verse 8. This is, this is before sin entering the world. This is when Adam and Eve were, were still in, we're going to see this specific part about Adam, but it's when Adam and Eve are in perfect relationship with God in the Garden of Eden. Now, now think about this for a second here. That's the kind of thing we just say, it's like a platitude, oh, this is before sin, they were in perfect relationship with God in the Garden, but, but, but think about what that is saying for a moment. There was a time and a place on earth when and where God was in perfect relationship with Adam and Eve. You know, as we experience brokenness in the world, we kind of think about this world like it's a, like it's a throwaway world. Like heaven is just going to be like take two. <laughs> like another universe or another planet. But on this planet, once upon a time, if we believe the account of the Bible, God was in perfect relationship with Adam and Eve in a time, in a place. That by itself is heavy stuff. And it has implications for who we are as a part of that same world God made. It has implications for the purpose of our lives. God was in perfect relationship with Adam and Eve. Look at Genesis 2, verses 8 and following here. In just that eighth verse, it says, The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there He put the man He had formed. This, this garden this garden is the place. It's the place of perfect relationship with God here on, on earth. In the 2nd and 3rd century B.C., there was uh, this group of, of, of scholars who came together and they translated the, the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. 2nd and 3rd century B.C. And when they translated this word, here, garden, they translated it as paradisos, which is the word we use for paradise. It's a word that's meant to connote that this is what Adam was experiencing in the garden. He was experiencing paradise, perfect peace with God. Before Adam and Eve sinned, they had perfect relationship with God. <laughs> which means... I don't know if you have this picture of, of what paradise looks like. I, I know that I kind of walk around these pictures of paradise in my, my head and these thoughts about certain kinds of things, dumb things like, oh, I hope I get to golf all day and th stuff like that. You know? uh, we have this, this idea about what paradise might be. And, and maybe Eve's conception uh, was something like this. You know, a nice, a nice uh, sort of English cottage with beautiful uh, greenery around and a little, little river going by my house and... You know, a nice bridge. I, I would want to live there. This is maybe Adam's conception that, uh, that this is paradise for Adam. There we go. Whole bunch of TVs. <laughs> uh, that's actually, that's obviously before sin entered the picture. Uh, because here's what I'm watching at home right now. With a couple, couple camp chairs sitting there eating, eating wings and drinking Pepsi, watching this kind of thing. Right there. 
That's the Wakefield household right there. <laughs> Sometimes I'm watching a football game and I think, hey, wait, who, ha- who even has the ball? I can't tell. <clears throat> Part of how we know that this was a paradise of perfect relationship with God is the next verse. Look at verse 9. It says, Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So, so God was taking care of Adam. Every, everything Adam needed was there. Well, almost. Eve hadn't yet been created, so clearly not, not everything Adam needed was there in one sense. In fact, God says that it's not good for man to be alone. Uh, can I get a witness? So, uh, the, the point here in Genesis 2 is that God and Adam and Eve had a perfect and abiding relationship with one another. Skip ahead to verse 10 where it gives us more of this picture of perfect relationship. It says, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. This is a part of this picture. Everything is right with the world. The water is making the garden grow as it was meant to do. Everything was in place. Everything was working as it was supposed to. Things were growing because of the river that flowed out of Eden into uh, to, to water the garden. Scripture is telling us here that God supplies what is needed for growth. God is the master gardener here. And of course, as you know, personal sin and rebellion against God is what, what messed up the paradise. Jealousy and deceit quickly divided Adam and Eve and their perfect relationship uh, with God and with one another. And and they became broken beyond their ability to repair it. We've all experienced our inability to repair a relationship, not just interpersonally, horizontally with one another. We've all experienced our inability to mend a relationship with God. And they saw this in their own lives and the lives of their offspring, the ones for whom they were supposed to be fruitful and multiply, which is not just about childbearing, it's about nurturing a place where the goodness of God can grow in people. That's every bit as much a part of this picture of the garden as having kids and bearing children might seem to be. This is about the goodness of God being made known in the lives of people by nurturing it and being fruitful and multiplying in a way that one could call in the New Testament discipleship. So this this great relationship of nurture was broken by sin, of course. And their own son, Adam and Eve's own son, was a murderer. By the time we get to Genesis chapter 6, brokenness and corruption had quickly become the norm. Genesis 6, verses 5 and 6 say, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. That word sorry there doesn't mean that Suddenly, God wished he hadn't done it. It means that he was sad. It's, it's impossible for God to create something he wished he hadn't created. That's just saying that he was sad. He was sad that he'd made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. The Scriptures are trying to communicate to us that God did not create the world as we know it now, as broken and not working right, but that we have taken the good creation of God where He intends to dwell. We talked about that last week. We have taken the good creation of God where He intends to dwell. 
And we have made it about us. Don't miss this. It's important to understand this. The brokenness of our world, the pain and the suffering, and the evil and the hurt, and the frustration that marks our relationships with one another, all of this brokenness is a result of us taking the good creation of God where He intends to dwell and perverting it and twisting it into something that is about us. It's like we've taken God's gift of His, His presence and His creation as the place where He intends to make His presence known and we've twisted it into being created for us. And what this does is it makes it impossible for God to live with us. It's not possible. It's impossible for us to have a relationship with Him when we twist the good things He's given us and we make it about us. That's at the heart, the prideful heart of sin is when we pervert it for our purposes. So when we sin by taking His good gift of creation, we make it impossible for God to have a relationship with us. Because God can't live with, He can't abide with sin. If there's, if there's an infinite, perfect, holy God of the universe who created everything that is, then it's not only against His character and nature to be in the presence of sin, it is literally impossible for Him to be in the presence of sin. So, this is the world we live in now. Broken. Not working at as it was intended to work. Not working to be a, a place where God can make His full presence known. That's why God curses the serpent and the ground. Notice, by the way, He didn't curse Adam and Eve. Curses the ground and the serpent and throws Adam and Eve out of the garden in Genesis 3. After the fall, when Adam and Eve sinned, Genesis 3, if you want to turn there real quick, Genesis 3, 22-24. This is after the fall, when Adam and Eve had sinned. Genesis 3, 22-4 say, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reached out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, meaning live forever in his sin. So actually, verse 23 is an act of grace. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So today, in Revelation 22, Scripture is tying up the loose ends of this story. It's tying up the loose ends of the story of brokenness. God does not leave it at the curse of Genesis 3. And there is now access again to this tree of life. This is a picture in Revelation 22 of God redeeming the world to Himself. He's, he's buying back the world. And at the very end in Revelation 22, God gives the Apostle John this beautiful picture of restoration. Ultimately, it's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture of the perfect presence of God with His people. Look at Revelation 22 again. First verse and a half to two verses there. Uh, says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. We're being shown a vision here in the first five verses that is a conclusion to what's been happening 
in all of chapter 21. In chapter 21, if you'll remember, John has been describing the new Jerusalem, which is a new temple slash city where God will live forever. And now he turns in Revelation 22, in chapter 22, to describe some further details about this. Look at verse 1. It says, The angel shows the apostle John the river of the water of life. This isn't just any old river, obviously, because this is a river that gives life. This isn't like the Nolachucky. This is like a Brita-filtered, pure river because it comes from, it says, the throne of God and of the Lamb. So this is, this is a pure water that comes from God. And it runs through, this is interesting, it runs through the middle of the street of the city. It runs through the middle of the street of the city, but, but there's a problem with this here. In the old city of Jerusalem, there was no river. Still isn't one. Never has been. So, so someone familiar with the old city of Jerusalem may come across this text and read this and think, what's going on here? What is this river that's flowing in the middle of the city? For some help, we go to Zechariah. Uh, I just want you to listen to this. In the Old Testament book of Zechariah, it promises in Zechariah 14.8, if you want to look that up later, Zechariah 14.8, it promises, verse 8, that on that day, meaning on the day when God restores creation back to its garden-like state. It also had practical implications for the immediate context, but it was a prophetic passage that spoke of immediate and future, which, by the way, for those of you who have been with us, is already and not yet, so it's a parallel. On that day when God prophetically in the future restores creation, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem. Half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In Ezekiel 47.1, if you want to look that up later, Ezekiel 47.1 is a really cool passage. This is at the end of a long vision in Ezekiel of a new and restored temple. Ezekiel 40 through 48 Toward the end of that, in 47, verse 1, it says, Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. Then it says the water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. So this first one and a half verses, this first couple of verses here of Revelation 21, are, are, are trying to remind us of a promise that the Scriptures have made that God will keep His promise to come to live with His redeemed people. That is, those who are like this water, pure and undefiled. Of course, <laughs> being pure and undefiled can't happen by being good enough, smart enough, rich enough, or anything enough. It can only happen by God being good enough for us. So, so this... River isn't pure because we're pure. This river is pure because it comes from the throne of God. And it's a cleansing water. Keep reading verse 2. It says, Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. So this river of the water of life is flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street, and also on either side of the river, there's a tree of life with 12 kinds of fruit. And it says, yields its fruit each month. The number 12, 
uh, for 12 kinds of fruit and for yielding its fruit each month, 12 months, is a way of saying that the trees are the complete number of God's people doing what they're supposed to do all the time. It's all of God's people together doing the things they're supposed to be doing and they're always doing it. This isn't, this isn't occasional fruitfulness. I mean, isn't that really what we experience here on earth? The brokenness of creation around us and our own ability to carry out God's plans means we, we experience occasional fruitfulness. This picture here is all the time fruitfulness. Full participation in the amazing work of God. Here's the key about this imagery in Scripture. The tree of life is a symbol of return to God being enough. The tree of life is a symbol of return to God being enough. It's a return to God being everything that we need. Now today, here with us, we have an illustration of a tree of life with us here. Uh, this beautiful artwork here was created by our own Christy Ottinger. And uh, we're going to show it up on the screen here if you can't see it from where you are. This is one of uh, many, I think. <laughs> I know she has more than just a couple. Uh, many of her trees of life. She said she went through a phase of being infatuated with the tree of life. Uh, this quilt is obviously... Uh, quite colorful and beautiful and well-balanced. Its branches are, are full of leaves. And it's a picture of health and serenity. Now, if she had done a tree of life quilt that was dark and dingy and the tree didn't have leaves on it and it looked haggard, you couldn't really call it a tree of life, could you? Friends, this Scripture passage is a picture of return to God being everything we need. Now, there's something cool I want you to see here in the text. I've been using the word we on purpose. There's something cool I want you to see from the text. This scene here isn't just about one tree of life. This is a picture, actually, of a grove of trees. Not just one. This is a picture of a bunch of trees that do what they're supposed to do. I'm not just making this up. Look at the text. It says, verse 2, on either side of the river. How does one tree get on either side of a river? doesn't. Which means that something weird is going on here. That's not explained from the immediate context. We turn again to Ezekiel for help. Ezekiel 47, uh, verse 12. It's the same chapter we looked at earlier in Ezekiel. This is, a, this is a prophetic description of the renewed temple and the world to come. Uh, in fact, Bereans, read all of 47, uh, at least the first half of it, and let it blow your mind for how much uh, there is a prophetic link between Genesis and Revelation there. So, Ezekiel 47, 12, it says this, On the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. It says on the banks on both sides of the river there will grow all kinds of trees. These are leaves that will not wither nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month. 
because the water for them flows from the sanctuary and their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. This is exactly what we're seeing in Revelation 22. You've got to remember that John the Apostle knows his Scripture way better than we do. So he sees this vision and it draws his memory back to Ezekiel 47. And do you think God knows what he's doing and is able to have an angel show John a vision that is, hmm, remarkably similar to Ezekiel 47? Of course he can. So, so verse 2 describes the kind of trees that are growing because they're fed by this river. Hear this closely. Verse 2 describes the kind of trees that are growing because they're fed by this river. They are healthy because they're fed by God's purity and holiness, which is how they're healthy. Keep reading in verse 2. We see here why they're healthy. We've just seen how they're healthy. Here's why they're healthy. It says the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. This tells us why the trees existed. They were growing things that bring healing. Their fruitfulness was for the presence of God to bring restoration and healing. Their fruitfulness was for the presence of God to fill, to bring restoration and healing. And notice something else here. It says the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. These trees of life bring restoration and healing of others. So, so don't miss this. Check this out. Trees that are in the restored garden don't start growing because they're in the restored garden. They're fruitful, not for their own sake, but for the healing of the nations. Your life wasn't given to you. It wasn't given to me to live for our purposes. Unless that purpose is in keeping with this picture. Your life was given to you on loan by God Himself to be a tree, to become a tree that is fruitful for the healing of others. Which means that to participate, to participate in our vision of, of making disciple makers is to work toward fruitfulness for the healing of others. If you think that your participation here is about you becoming a tree of life, you haven't read for the healing of the nations. To have, to have a greater vision for your stuff than having enough to pay for your kids to go to college or enough to retire comfortably is to work toward fruitfulness for the healing of others. Friends, the, the story of Scripture is not just some story of how God saves me. It's, it's, it's cosmic in scope. It's 
a bigger story of how God redeems and buys us back so that we can be fruitful to participate in the joy of seeing others redeemed to God. Trees of life bring healing. That's why you have everything that you have. That's why God's called us together here. Scripture's a story of how God redeems us and buys us back so that we can be people on mission. In fact, I don't think it's about having a mission. I think it's a story about the mission that has a people. And when we, when we have entered into the fruitfulness of healing for others, we have entered into a way of life that will mean seeing in full measure the goodness and the glory and the eternal beauty of the Creator of the universe. Let me say that again. When we enter into the fruitfulness of healing of others, we have entered into a way of life that will mean seeing in full measure the goodness of and the glory and the beauty of the creator of the universe, which is described in the next few verses in, in beautiful terms. Read along the next three verses and just let this beautiful description of the presence of God wash over you. Verse 3 says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His servants will worship Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. So how do we, how do we get back to this? Eden to this restored perfect relationship with God how do I get to see his face the full and perfect presence of almighty God one word of course Jesus in Christ in Jesus God's presence is made known. In fact, in Jesus, God begins to restore a broken world into a place where God can make His presence known. In Jesus, the, the presence of God was, was made known. And He begins to restore the broken world into a place where God can make His presence fully known. Again, it's why Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty seven, all things, not, not some, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. In other words, in Christ the full presence of God lived and dwelled. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except by the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. And then listen to this, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Which means, friends, the Son reveals the presence of God. Not fully 
as we will experience Him in a restored garden. But so richly so that we are said to have all the riches of Christ in Him by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the simple question, the simple question for you is, are you, are you a tree of life? Are you becoming a tree of life? Is your life's resources, are they being used for the purpose of the healing of the nations? The presence of God, the presence of God in you, made known in Jesus and put into you through the Holy Spirit, is what turns you into a tree of life, growing to become who God made you to be. That's why we're here. That's what we do. That is the goal of our gatherings, of our fellowship, of our offerings, of our praises of our study in the Word together. Of the time we're going to enjoy around a table with somebody at lunch, maybe. It's for becoming people who are about the healing of the nations.